0: If tax reform is hard, what could we do about finding other processes to make tax reform more straightforward and simple? You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals.
1: Welcome to episode 144 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, Chris Evans of UNSW spoke about the hurdles that seem to stifle any real chance of a tax reform. In this episode, Chris Evans will talk about tax simplification. If we can't reform, can we at least simplify things?
0: So why is our tax system so complex? Look, first of all, we have to just be sure in our minds that it is complex. How can we tell whether our tax system is complex? And I mean, anecdotally, we all know it's complex. But if you go to anyone in any country, in any part of the world and ask them about the complexity of their tax system, they're going to say, no, ours is the most complex. Everybody thinks their own tax system is the most complex. I happen to think that Australia actually is amongst the most complex. And I think that for a number of reasons. I mean, it's not just what people say about it. It's not just our experience of perhaps dealing with our tax returns, or if we're in business of attempting to to file and report our tax liabilities and so on. You can look at a number of indicators. You can look at the complexity of our legislation itself, its readability. And if you test its readability, and there's a variety of ways you can test how understandable our tax legislation is, you find that Australia comes out very, very badly. You can look at the fact that Australia is... I think the second highest in the world in terms of its use of tax agents, professional tax advisors, to help us to file our which tax returns. The highest? the highest, surprisingly, is Italy, and I'm not quite sure why. It's something like ninety percent of personal taxpayers in Italy use a tax advisor. In Australia it's seventy between seventy two and seventy five percent, depending on which figures you use. So about three quarters of us are incapable of dealing with our own tax affairs. As personal taxpayers we have to use an advisor. For businesses it's it's much higher than that. It's obviously in the high nineties. That's a strong indicator of the complexity of our tax system and i think the area where i do most of my research is in looking at tax compliance costs and the tax compliance costs for australian taxpayers whether they're business taxpayers or personal taxpayers are higher than anywhere else in the world the research has consistently shown this it's shown that our compliance costs are significant they're very high in absolute terms that they're regressive in the sense that they hit hit the small business taxpayer heavier or harder than they hit large business, or, or the person with low income is hit heavier than a person with high income, and they don't seem to be getting any better over time. They're not reducing over time. Compliance costs have been high and they seem to be getting higher. Compliance costs I'm talking about are the costs that we incur as taxpayers in complying with our tax obligations. So it's things like the fees that we pay to tax advisors, the value of our time and the incidental costs we incur in dealing with our tax affairs. They're the costs that would disappear if we didn't have that particular tax or that particular aspect of the tax system.
1: So tax compliance cost doesn't include the cost of the um, ATO?
0: No. So the other side of the coin are what we call administrative costs. And that's the costs... Of the Australian tax office in administering the tax system. So if you add together the compliance costs that taxpayers incur and the administrative costs that the revenue authority incurs, you've got the operating costs of the tax system. And the operating costs of the tax system in Australia do seem to be higher than in many other countries. Causes of the complexity? it's very difficult to to think of those, but one very obvious cause is change and frequency of change. If we get used to a a certain tax system and then it's changed, but even worse if it's changed on a number of occasions, that obviously increases the costs of complying with that tax system. Change is, is one very obvious cause of tax system complexity. I mean, I think another obvious reason of tax system complexity is that life isn't simple. You know, nobody can pretend it is anymore. And in order to have a tax system that can cope with all the situations that you come across, you probably need to have some level of complexity in it. It's it's not going to be straightforward and simple and easy. Uh, Anybody who thinks it is, is probably being too idealistic or, or too simplistic. Another reason that we get a lot of complexity is that we tend to try and use our tax system for things it wasn't designed for. So a tax system is really good at raising tax I and mean, that's what a tax system should be about. But once you start using your tax system to achieve other objectives, social objectives, let's say we want to reduce the amount of obesity in, in the nation, so we introduce a sugar tax to do that. Or we want to stop people drinking, so we introduce alcohol taxes, things like that. Once you start using your tax system to make behavioral changes, it's inevitably the tax system is it's inevitable that the tax system is gonna become more complex. It's also, for example, we use the tax system sometimes to collect higher education, contribution scheme debts and things like that. It may make sense to use the tax system in that way, but it certainly adds to the complexity of the tax system. Another obvious example is we sometimes want to encourage entrepreneurship or innovation things like that. So we introduce research and development tax credits or incentive schemes. And again, it's another complication of the tax system because you introduce the scheme, it's giving a relief, people start abusing the relief, and so you have to introduce integrity measures to stop them abusing the relief and it just gets more and more complicated the further on we go. Sometimes it might have made more sense not to use the tax system to encourage entrepreneurship or innovation or small businesses or whatever it is, but perhaps a direct subsidy might have been a a better use of time and resources and government money rather than give them the tax incentive in some way. So you've got that as another major cause of tax system complexity. And then I think we often try to make our tax system as fair as it possibly can be, but equity, fairness, comes at a cost. If you want to make it fair, you probably have to make it more complex. You have to have different rules for different sets of people. It's not a one size fit rule anymore. It's a customized set of rules. And once you've got customized, you've got thresholds and you've got cut-off points and all those sorts of things. So it becomes more and more complex. The classic example that came out in the Henry review um, about 10 years ago was the fact that for FBT purposes, it was possible to value the cost of a meal for an employee in 39 different ways. And it's inevitably the case if you've got a lot of choices about which way to do something, you're going to work it out on the basis of all those choices to see which is the best choice. Now, that's taken you a lot of time. It's a lot of compliance costs to probably save yourself 50 cents or a dollar or something like that. So there is an argument that sometimes we bend over backwards to be too fair. And it might be more simple to be less fair and just have no choice in those circumstances or fewer choices. So you've got all those reasons, all those causes of complexity. The big thing is, well, is there anything we can do about it? And I think the short answer to that question is, yes, there's an awful lot we can do about reducing tax system complexity or managing complexity. You can do things at the policy level or the legislative level or the administrative level. So if I think of a a good example at the policy or legislative level, and and it's an example I came across myself just about three weeks ago when I was finalising my tax return for submission. Interestingly, I use a tax agent because I'm very scared as a professor of tax of getting it wrong, and so I want to make sure, because I don't want to be on the front of the fin review saying tax professor cheats on tax or something like that so i do all the background work first get all the schedules ready and then i hand it over to a tax agent who is very good, puts it all together, submits my tax return on my behalf. I have a variety of different sources of income and that makes it complicated. I work in South Africa, I work in the UK, I work in Australia. So there's lots of currency conversions going on behind the schedules and I can sort of cope with all of that. It takes me a day or perhaps even two days over a weekend. But this year, I actually found that I had sold 15 Westpac shares which I didn't even know I'd owned. In fact, I just found them accidentally, got rid of them um, because I thought, you know, let's tidy things up and then had to sit down and work out how to calculate the capital gain on 15 Westpac shares. So I had to go back and try and find in my books and records, or at least my very big filing cabinet, when I'd first acquired those shares. And to my surprise, I found I hadn't acquired Westpac shares. I'd acquired St. George's shares many, many years ago. And I'd sold most of the St. George's shares, but for some reason I hadn't sold the shares which I'd acquired as a result of a dividend reinvestment plan and some bonus issues and some rights issues. So I had a really complicated history for these 15 Westpac shares that i had now sold. And I write a textbook on capital gains tax. And I think it's probably technically one of the best textbooks out there. I would say that it's very well researched and I deal with all the complex provisions in the CGT. But even after consulting that, after consulting the legislation, after looking through all my files, after a day's work, I still could not calculate what I knew would be probably about a $50 capital gain on 15 Westpac shares. Actually, probably a little bit more than that, but not much more than that. And so I very, very shamefacedly passed it over to my tax agent, who when I saw him a few days later said, you know, that took me nearly half a day to calculate. And that was with his software and with all the information available and having dealt with these a few times, half a day of his time, a day at least of my time to calculate a capital gain, which turned out to be about $110 for me and $110 for my wife. Now that is ridiculous waste of everybody's time. And there's a simple legislative solution to that. And that is, why don't we just have a day minimus, annual exempt amount for capital gains? If you go to a country, again, like the UK, you'll find that they have a very large annual exempt amount. The first £12,000, which is about $20,000 worth of capital gains, are tax-free. Now, I don't suggest we should have anything like that in Australia, but we shouldn't be paying tax on the first dollar of capital gain. We might exempt, for example, 1000 Dollars worth of capital gain. And then you might think, well, you've still got to calculate it to know that you're below the exemption. Well, there's a simple rule you could bring in, which says the first $1,000 of capital gain is exempt or capital proceeds up to $2,000. I knew I sold my 15 Westpac shares for $400. That's below the 2000 capital proceeds threshold. If we had that system in place, I would have saved a day, my tax agent would have saved half a day, and I'd have saved, I think it's about $800 I'd have to pay for the the privilege of all that. So there's a very obvious policy or legislative fix to some of the complexities in our tax system. You could do it very, very easy. I also think there's lots of low-hanging fruit On the administrative side, where we could do things a lot more sensibly and a lot better. As I said earlier, 72% of taxpayers use a tax agent to file their tax return. If you go to a country like the UK, it's far less. If you go to New Zealand, it's far less. And one of the reasons is that in Australia, we expect every single taxpayer to file a tax return every year. There are certain exceptions to that. For 99.5% of us, we're filing a tax return every year. And I just wonder, is that necessary? If you look around the OECD, there are, I think at the moment, 35 or 36 countries in the OECD, and more than half of them don't require annual filing. They get away with what they call reduced filing. You only have to file if you have complicated tax affairs. If you're just a simple PAYG or PAYE type taxpayer, personal taxpayer, and taxes deducted at source, and assuming you've got a reasonably cumulative withholding at source type system, and if, for example, you've got some bank interest, but taxes deducted at source on that, and perhaps some dividends and some royalties and taxes deducted on that, If the right amount of tax has been deducted at the end of the tax year, why would you need to file a tax return? It's only because we've got some very cumbersome administrative systems which don't withhold the right amount of tax at the right time, so that at the end of the tax year, usually we're owed a refund. It's only because of that that everybody has to file. With pre-population of tax returns, which is possible and, and goes on in Australia and elsewhere now, and with sensible withholding systems and with flatter tax rates, it's perfectly possible to design a tax system where we don't have to file if we've got simple tax affairs everything is right by the end of the year the employers taken the right amount of tax off the bank has taken the right amount of tax off no need to do anything i neither owe nor i'm i owed at the end of the tax year now that won't apply to all taxpayers but i can tell you there, there are countries like denmark where it applies to 80 percent of taxpayers so 80 percent of taxpayers don't file a tax return they simply get an sms at the from the tax office after the end of the tax year which says We think your tax liability is this. Click Y for agree, N for no. If it's an N, then we'll look into it further. If it's a Y, end of story. So why can't we be as simple as that? I think we've made a rod for our own back with the administrative arrangements we've got. And it would be much easier. It would be easy to do it in a much more straightforward and simple fashion.
1: What about work-related expenses? Okay. Islam, for example, don't have... Okay. Have and, and, and
0: I was nicely glossing over that. There is, of course, the issue of work-related expenses. In New Zealand, in the UK, you don't get work-related expenses. It's very interesting that I spend a large time on compliance matters claiming my work-related expenses, which are often really trivial amounts for a cup of coffee when I'm working in South Africa or for a taxi fare when I'm in the UK or whatever. There was a proposal some years ago to introduce a standard work-related deduction. Sadly, it was very badly designed and it didn't get off the ground. Most people would have still kept all of their little pieces of paper and their the little incidental expenses and calculated them at the end of the year. To see whether they were better off claiming them on an actual basis or work related or the, or the standard work related deduction. You need to pitch your standard work related deduction at a level where it just doesn't make sense to keep all those scrappy bits of paper in the bottom of your shoebox and calculate them all and submit them at the end of the year. So I think if the government had been bold enough. To do that and to remove most of the work-related expenses, then again, that's going to fit in with the notion that we don't all need to file a tax return every year.
1: Mm -hmm. So, what was the lump sum? I
0: think it was five hundred they were offering. And And it was just not enough. So Mm -hmm. most people would be. I mean, I certainly would have because mine is, you know, something like 3000, you know, something like that. But it's all based on 30 cents, you know, and 50, so $2.50 and stuff like that. So I have a, a schedule of expenses, which is seven, eight pages of Excel spreadsheet long, you know, so it's a ridiculous waste of time. I think there's another way of doing it. We made some proposals for tax reform about 15 years ago, and we did calculations whereby we said if everybody was to give up their work-related expenses, so this is all personal taxpayers, and if business taxpayers were to accept a standard deduction rather than having to calculate all their expenses. In those circumstances, you could reduce the top tax rates and all of the other marginal tax rates by 5%. So if you give me a choice between claiming all my deductions or paying 5% less tax, I'd probably go for the 5% less tax across the board. That would save me a lot more money and save a lot more of my valuable time in compiling these silly submissions for, for tax deductions and so on. So, it is possible to find ways around it. Reducing the tax rate is a much better thing than giving everybody work related expenses. It's rough justice. Some people, most people will gain, some people will lose. You just have to say, well, let's design some of our tax system around the 80 20 rule rather than the 20 20 20 20 rule. It doesn't make sense to try and calibrate it too much sometimes just having a rough and ready tax system can be a much better one. It'll save us a lot of time. It will be simpler. It possibly won't be as fair as equitable, but it'll be simpler, and that will save us an awful lot as a society and personally. I tend to think conceptually rather than in terms of too much detail, and conceptually it's this equity simplicity trade-off. So perhaps make it less fair, fewer choices, but make it simpler. It's this notion of if you're going to change, do it once and do it right. I think the history of the tinkering with the tax system that we've seen in Australia, if you think about, for example, the small business concessions and My history in Australia goes back to the 1990s, and there were a few things going on then for small businesses. And then in 1999, we got the four small business CGT concessions, which is massive overkill. You could As Henry, as the Henry Review suggested, you could get rid of two or possibly three of those concessions and have only one or possibly two of those concessions left and work just as effectively. And then when you went on beyond the late 90s, you had the simplified tax system was introduced in the early 2000s, which was a complete disaster. And then since then, we've had a whole variety of sort of different ways of calculating depreciation for small businesses, reduced rates for small businesses and all sorts of other things in the income tax space, in the FBT space, in the GST space, and in the capital gains space. So you've had all these changes. And frankly, they've probably not helped one bit. So I think sometimes we tend to tinker too much and we keep changing. We don't let things settle down. And as a result, people are confused, they don't claim the concessions they're entitled to, the legislation is built layer upon layer upon layer and becomes steadily more, the word I use is barnacled, you've got more barnacles on it, so it's, it's more encrusted with all sorts of things that you don't need and you lose sight of what it was trying to achieve and it doesn't achieve it. There's a lot of the literature suggests that if you want to help small businesses, help all businesses don't just focus on one particular sector. So, um, possibly much better to think in, in terms of not having carve out regimes for particular aspects, but keep it simple and have the same regimes for everyone. Tax reform, if you're going to make changes, Change it once and change it right, get it right first time. Again, if I think of the taxation of financial arrangements legislation when that was introduced, or the consolidations regime when those were introduced 15, 20 years ago, every single year for 15 years after there have been changes to try and get it right. It suggests that the original design wasn't appropriate. It would be much better if those changes didn't occur. If we changed it once... And then it was right. Again, it's idealistic, but it's possible. We're doing things on the run, and Parliament is often doing things on the run, instead of giving it special consideration. And I have to say, one of the good things that is happening now is that the Board of Taxation, which I would see as a possible candidate for being extended into a standing committee on tax reform but they do tend to look at legislation and to review it and to identify how it could be changed for the better but changing it with one fell swoop with one hit rather than this sort of incremental approach to change that we seem to have. Do
1: you find that the Board of Taxation has power Do you see a good take-up on what
0: they suggest? It's interesting. I've just been involved in the small business concession review by the Board of Taxation and they've submitted the report to government. Government doesn't have to act on it and government may sit on it for months or years. It will be interesting to see whether they do sit on it. Certainly there are other reviews that the board has taken where they have sat on it far too long. It's not been implemented. But I can think of a number of occasions where recommendations by the Board of Taxation have been picked up and have been run with by the government and have improved the situation. So do they have enough power? Yes, but government still has to listen and government still has to act on it. And sometimes tax... Reform suggested by the Board of Tax or tax maintenance suggested by the Board of Tax isn't the government's top priority. They've got too many other priorities, too many other things to do.
1: Welcome back. Do you remember the essays you wrote in high school or uni? Do you remember how every essay had a word limit? Maybe we should introduce a word limit for our tax system, one million words for our entire tax legislation. That would force legislators to keep it simple, be short, concise, and succinct, and save us the rabbit holes that we are currently running through every time we look at a tax issue. Over the next two episodes, episode 145 and 146, Robin Jacobson of Tax Banta will talk about how our tax law is made. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.